This evening, congregation, we return to our series of sermons through Micah, uh, and we come this evening to a section found in Micah 4. We'll be looking at verses 9 and 10, but we'll read the chapter in its entirety, Micah 4. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1073. We read then this evening Micah 4, and hear now together the word of the Lord. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths." For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Thus far our reading this evening, and again it is especially to verses 9 and 10 that we turn our attention as the words of our text. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs, for now you shall go forth from the city." You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I think of the prophecy of Micah, and especially the chapter that we're in, Micah 4, I can't help but think of Psalm 80, and that's why we've chosen to sing that psalm this evening. Stanza 4, saying this way, Thy vineyard no longer, thy tender care knows defenseless, the victim and spoil of her foes. It's an accurate summary of what life was like in the nation of Israel, by and large during the prophecy of Micah. 
The Assyrians were threatening, and upon the heels of the Assyrians would come the Babylonians. Exile was on the horizon. Uh, But the remnant, the faithful people of God, those who continued to live by faith and hope in the promise of God, even as they would also experience the trauma uh, of a pending exile, uh, they had a reason to hope. They had a reason to hope based upon the promises of a God who never changes, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why the people of God can then and can now, in addition to singing stanza four, thy vineyard no longer, thy tender care knows, defenseless, the victim and spoil of her foes, can also sing stanza six, when thou shalt revive us, thy name we will praise. The people of God do not sing, if thou shalt revive us, we will then sing your praise. But when, and and that when flows out of the prophetic ministry of the servants of God. So Micah had a twofold task to go throughout, especially the rural landscape in the southern tribes and proclaim to them, yes, exile is coming. And yes, in a sense, the vineyard of the Lord's people no longer knows his tender cares, but he will redeem his people. And when we are revived, thy name we will praise, and never more turning depart from thy ways. And it's interesting, now boys and girls, you may say, well, that didn't take a whole lot of study to come up with that statement. Stanza four and stanza six stands around stanza five. And in stanza five, did you catch what we sang? The Son of Man strengthen thy pleasure to do. So a humble acknowledgement of a pending exile, but a prospective hope that we would be spiritually revived, and it all hinges upon the Son of Man who would accomplish the redemption of the people of God. Now we want to consider this theme a bit more this evening, the Lord promises a future redemption. And we'll notice, first of all, the need for a future redemption, and then secondly, the source of a future redemption, and then thirdly, the work in a future redemption. Uh, So in the midst of everything that was happening in the historical context, the Lord comes to the prophet Micah and promises the people of God a future redemption. We'll notice the need, the source, and the work of that future redemption. And what I want to do is, for these three points, is take three different phrases from our text, especially verse 10. And so when you think of the need for a future redemption, think of life in the southern kingdom at least. There was a veneer of success about the life of the southern tribes. I say a veneer of success because you might say the economy was going rather well. Uh, There was some what we might call international trade. There was a certain measure of prosperity, not only for the higher upper class, but also for the middle class. And so on that level, you might say there was a veneer of prosperity, but behind the veneer of prosperity, there was spiritual apostasy. Uh, So you might say that the foundations were being destroyed, and yet the exterior of the building of their lives was still holding up, but the day would come in which the entire structure would collapse. 
And that's what Micah has the obligation to proclaim. So the need for the future redemption is really captured by this phrase right in the middle of verse 10, and to Babylon you shall go. Now I have to admit that we cannot really communicate the impact that those words would have had upon the original hearers. To Babylon you shall go. We, we, we read that very quickly. And maybe we even know some of the history of it. We think, oh yes, Babylon, you know, a, a foreign army, the enemy of God's people, representing the, the nations of the ungodly. But imagine for a moment you are an Israelite. And you hear the prophet of the Lord coming through your town or your village saying, to Babylon you shall go. Now, boys and girls, this is not just like a summer vacation, like to the cottage we will go, or out west we will go, or to grandpa and grandma's house we will go. The closest thing that I can think of, and here again we're very detached from this, but imagine, imagine if you were talking with someone who lived in the Ukraine, a native of the Ukraine, and imagine if you said, to Russia you shall go. The horror of what that would mean for them, being exiled from their native land, being subdued by a foreign oppressor. To hear these words, the the faithful Israelite would have recoiled with horror to Babylon. We shall go. And that points out the need for a future redemption in light of exile and in light of sin. Micah's whole prophetic ministry takes place on the eve of Israel's exile, uh, where, where God in His providence was actually going to uproot His people from the land that He had planted them in. And you well remember the the covenant promise given to Abram, continued down throughout the generations, Uh, and how then with the the exile, with Moses, and how the people were brought out of Egypt, and you might say transplanted into the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that was symbolic of the, the covenantal blessings. And the Lord then had used Israel to uproot Uh, the pagan Canaanites, and to punish the Canaanites for their sins of idolatry. And he had, you might say, tenderly planted the covenant people of Israel there in the promised land. But they had grown in their covenantal presumption uh, into apostasy and into idolatry, and they had looked around, and they had seen the the foreign gods, and they had seen the foreign worship, and they had seen the, the foreigner's way of life, and they had said, yes, we also want to live like them. We want to be more like the world. We want to have the world's gods, the world's activities, the world's pastimes. And anytime you choose to have that which the world offers, you reject that which the Lord promises. And sadly, that's what the Israelites had done. And so the Lord says, I will cast you out of the promised land. To Babylon you will go. And now this exile symbolized an alienation from the Lord God. Now in no way are we for a moment doubting or denying such biblical and comforting truths as eternal election, the 
perseverance of the saints. We're speaking about corporate Israel, and we well remember, we well know that the Apostle Paul gave us an interpretive lens when he said that not all Israel are of Israel, not, not every external member of the covenant community was a sincere believer. And we talked in recent weeks about the remnant, uh, about that small portion uh, who still continued to live on waiting for the consolation of Israel. Individuals such as Simeon who would come into the temple waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the comforter to come. But for the most part, uh, the external community of Israel uh, had slinked away by way of apostasy. And so the Lord says, you will be alienated. You will be sent out of the promised land because of sin. And I want to make clear, and you'll notice if you follow the outline, that there are two subpoints underneath the need for a future redemption. Redemption is necessary in light of the exile, uh, but, but that kind of just hangs out there. Well, why was the exile so necessary? Because of sin. Sin is the cause of exile. Now, of course, God is the ultimate cause of the exile, but the exile is brought about because of the sin uh, of the Israelites. Uh, we see this plainly stated, if you look back, for example, we considered this passage some uh, weeks ago, uh, verse 8 of chapter 3. Uh, there Micah explained the message that he had to communicate, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now, just in passing, I want to give us a word of instruction also for future generations. Uh, and, and so maybe young people listen attentively. Well, hopefully you always listen attentively, maybe extra attentively, but not just the young people, for all of us. Faithful gospel ministry. If you evaluate it biblically, the faithful gospel minister must talk about sin. But then I want to be quick to add, the faithful gospel minister must also talk about grace. And, and so, biblically tuned ears of the soul, whenever we evaluate the, the ministry of the pulpit, of course, with open Bibles, we, we test everything like the Bereans, uh, but we can ask ourselves, does the, the pulpit ministry of a church, does it speak about sin? And then does it also speak very quickly and in connection about grace? And, and those are the two weights, if you want, uh, that, that bring a balance to biblical preaching. Uh, by weights, uh, I, I think just recently we had the opportunity to be backstage in uh, Palo Christian grade school, and, and there was the, the, the curtain there, and, and in no way was I ever involved in any acting. I'm, I'm terrible at acting, but I just noticed the curtain. I actually had to open it up, and, and, and there's this long rope down from the, the top little pulleys to open the curtain, and there's two weights, one on each side. And boys and girls, you, you can imagine why. It's there to keep the rope down. But if you put both weights on one of the ropes, well, that's not going to work. And so you have a weight on the left side of the rope, and you have a weight on the right side of the rope. Faithful biblical preaching must emphasize sin and then grace. And as we said, when we looked at Micah 3, verse 8, the proclamation of sin and of judgment upon sin actually serves the ministry of grace. And so Micah is very, very clear. 
Uh, so is Isaiah, one of his contemporaries. Uh, Isaiah 59 verse 2 identifies very clearly that this exile or this alienation is a result of their sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 comes and he says, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Now, now why did these men minister so pointedly? Now, of course, you could say, well, they ministered so pointedly because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Fair enough, but why did the Holy Spirit inspire them to speak so pointedly about the sin? Because here's the human condition. By nature, we are prone to deny our sin. By nature, we are prone to excuse our sin. And and you see this happening uh, all around, whether it be the nation or, sadly, uh, in the broader church scene. Everyone has an explanation for why they do what they do. Well, it was my upbringing. Well, it was my lack of an upbringing. Well, it was this. Well, it was that. Sometimes even secular experts speak about this victim mentality. And you could about imagine the Israelites marching off into a foreign land to Babylon, you would go. And no doubt they would have been wondering within themselves and maybe communing among themselves, why do we have to go to Babylon? Well, it's because of this. It was because of that social political move of one of our kings. It was because of this of our leaders. But whether it was Micah, whether it would be Jeremiah, whether it was one of the other prophets, they made it very, very clear. Exile because of sin. But they didn't stop there. They also spoke about this future redemption that was so necessary because of the exile and sin. And so in our second point, uh, in contrast to these dreadful words, to Babylon you shall go, there then notice also, in the words of our text, verse 10, is this wonderful statement, there you shall be delivered. And now, now here again, we can't really reproduce the impact that this would have. Wait a minute, the Israelite would have said, I'm going to Babylon, a foreign nation, an ungodly nation, a nation that has long been characterized as the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, and there, there we will be redeemed, away from the temple, away from the altar away from all of the sacrificial system that has been instituted by divine command? Because if an Israelite would have thought about redemption, redemption had its center there in Jerusalem. There was the most holy place. There was the Ark of the Covenant. There God met with His priest on the Day of Atonement. There the blood was sprinkled. There the blood was shed. And yet redemption in Babylon... Why this remarkable contrast? At least in part to show that redemption is of the Lord. Wasn't this the same lesson that Jonah had to learn? Now, he talks about salvation is of the Lord. But, I mean, Jonah, again, an Israelite, a a member of the covenant community, given a commission to preach the gospel. Where? Nineveh. Of all of the places, Nineveh, they're the enemies, Lord. They're the people who deserve wrath. They're the people who deserve condemnation. They're the people who deserve destruction. Yes, Jonah, to Nineveh. Why Nineveh? 
And, and then when Nineveh actually repents and responds positively to the trumpeting of the gospel call to repent, Jonah walks out and he has a little spiritual pity party for himself. You remember the story quite well. He sits down, you might say, and he is disgusted because he knew that the Lord would be gracious. Isn't that absolutely remarkable? I knew it, Lord. I knew you were going to forgive them. I knew you were going to relent of the, the, the judgment that was to come. And through that difficult way, Jonah had to learn in a very concrete personal experience, salvation is of the Lord. Redemption is from the Lord. Redemption is based not upon what the Israelites will do and not upon who they are, but redemption is entirely from the Lord. It does not rest upon the work of Israel. And so the Lord doesn't say, to Babylon you go until you learn how to be good little people. He doesn't say, go off to Babylon and when you when you learn how to serve only me, then come back here and prove yourself. You know, boys and girls, and, and now don't go asking my parents about this, especially my mother about this, but may, maybe sometimes your mother says, go to your room. And you can come out when you can behave yourself. Now, maybe you're all good little boys and girls and your mother never says that to you, but I would dare say at least one mother in here has said that to one child. Go to your room and come out when you have a better attitude. That's not what the Lord is saying. Because it's impossible for Israel to redeem themselves. How cruel it would be for the gospel minister to say, here's what the Lord is saying, go off into the land of exile until you can learn how to be the people of God. No, the, the Lord doesn't say that. He says... To Babylon you will go, there you shall be delivered, there the Lord will redeem you. And so it's all about what the Lord is going to do. And, and, and we as the, the church, and we as a Christian, and I know that this is in some ways repetitive from this morning, but it's a biblical repetition, we need to be refocused that it's not about what we are able to do. Our hope cannot ever be placed in what we think we will do. And our hope ultimately can never be placed in what we think an office bearer will do. Or what we think a minister can do. That's setting ourselves up for disaster. If we think, oh, now things will be well, now things will be good. We will do this, they will do that, he or she will do this other thing. Then may I humbly but also pointedly come and say, don't look to what we will do. Look to what the Lord will do and what the Lord has promised to do. Because the Lord does not share his glory with anyone. And so Israel marches off into captivity because there the Lord would redeem them. And he would do that because he is the covenantal Lord. He has made a covenantal promise, and that covenantal promise rests entirely upon the Messiah. Uh, now here we have to admit uh, we are dealing with this word redeem. You know, if you ask exegetically, uh, how did you find Christ in this passage? 
Uh, we're dealing with this word redeem, and then we're using other Scripture to shed light on what this word redeem means. And so we flip forward to Micah 5, verse 2, uh, and there is this wonderful prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, if you look back at verse 9 of our text, why do you cry aloud, is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? Uh, you might say that's a rhetorical question, because the Davidic kingdom, you remember that David had been established as king, and a covenant promise had been made to David uh, that his his seed would sit upon the throne forever. And yet the initial, the initial realization of that promise seemed to be in serious trouble. Now, Solomon, you might say, although with certain sins had ruled well and there had been an expansion of the Davidic kingdom and a certain peace, uh, but then the kingdom had been divided. And the northern kingdom is on the very threshold of being conquered by the Assyrians. And in the southern kingdom, the Davidic kingdom is struggling. Uh, these are the days uh, of the kings uh, such as Jotham and Ahaz. And yes, Hezekiah comes along with his reforms. But you might say that the, the kingdom is on a, a downward trajectory. And, and yet even as the Davidic kingdom seems to be coming close to extinction, there is this question, is there no king in your midst? Well, you might be prone to answer, no, there's really not a king, but there is a king, the messianic king, and he's coming. And he's coming in the fullness of time, and he's coming with a full and a perfect accomplishment of redemption. And so in this word, the Lord shall redeem you there, there is implied, as is made explicitly elsewhere, that this redemption is based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, upon His perfect obedience to the covenantal law, to His accomplishment of salvation. And that ties in as we transition into the work and a future redemption. So if we could just summarize, yes, Israel is in desperate need of a future redemption because of the pending exile. It is a consequence of their sin. And that, of course, is where we are also by nature. You need redemption. I need redemption because we are alienated from our God because of our sin. But thanks be to God that the gospel message is not, well, now you see if you can work yourself back into the graces of God but that the Lord says again and again and again through the gospel preaching, the Lord will redeem you. The Lord will redeem you. Even in the midst of your exile. Even in the midst of your alienation. And, and so one of the texts we referred to this morning, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still in this state of being dead in our sins and in our trespasses. There in our alienation from God, our redemption was accomplished through the mediating person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the work in a future redemption, our third point, is a work of obtaining liberation through the providing of a sacrifice. And you'll notice, and I don't try to hide this, I hope it's clear if you look at uh, the, the structure of the, what we call the homiletical structure of, of the sermon, we're, we're moving to the end. And, and maybe some young listeners go, well, well, that's encouraging. But the end is going to culminate and focus upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
The work of redemption is that of obtaining liberation. In that word in verse 10 of redeem, there is this obtaining of liberation or being set free from the bondage of sin. Now, most of us have never lived underneath what we call occupation. Perhaps we've heard stories, and perhaps there is a person here who did live underneath the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. But for most of us, we cannot even begin to appreciate the horrors of living under such an occupation. And so perhaps we have a difficult time also appreciating the joy of freedom, of liberation. Uh, But we've read the reports, maybe we've even seen some old news footage of when the Allied forces liberated the Netherlands. Freedom. Imagine what that must have been in the heart of someone who had lived during those difficult years. Years of death. Years of hunger to the point of starvation. Years of constant fear and angst. And then to experience liberation. Now that is just a small, small, small comparison for the wonder of spiritual liberation. We were condemned to die on account of our sin. But we are released from captivity. And is that not the prophetic testimony of what Jesus Christ would do? And when John the Baptist has his questions when he is in prison and he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are are you the Christ or do we seek for another? Jesus says, go back and tell John the Baptist that there's freedom for the captives. Now you might say, well, that all sounded ironic to John the Baptist behind prison bars, but there was freedom for the captives, spiritual freedom, and there is spiritual freedom for the people of God. Freedom from the the penalty of sin. Freedom from death and freedom also from the, the bondage of sin, from that corruption of sin. Now, yes, we readily testify on the authority of Scripture as confirmed by our experience that since we're still here in this life, We're not completely rid of the presence of sin. But we are free from the penalty of sin and we are free from the dominating power of sin. And the day is soon coming in which the Christian shall be completely free from the remaining influence of sin. And so what a glory is ours based upon the redemption that the Lord has accomplished on our behalf. You can think, for example, of Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Read it again and just let your soul feast on that. He, that is Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, carried us over, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He has redeemed us by the work of providing a sacrifice. The word redeem, again in verse 10, rests upon the idea of the provision of a sacrifice to remove the guilt of sin. 
This redemption that the Lord accomplishes has a solid foundation that it rests upon, and it rests upon that atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God will redeem His people through and based upon that atoning sacrifice that removes the guilt of sin, that definitively removes the guilt of sin. So that God now looks upon us just as if we had never sinned. I was just reading recently uh, about a criminal in a different state, so you don't have to wonder uh, who this might be. A criminal, and it made mention that he had what they call a long rap sheet. A long series of run-ins with the law. Many, many occasions in which he had been to court, in which he had been found guilty. And it's, it's there on his record. You know, and sometimes we, uh, we try to impress individuals with the need to be careful in life, and we say, you know, that goes on your record, and it'll be there forever on your record. Think of it this way. We also have a record, or maybe we should more correctly say we had a record. Our rap sheet of violations against God's holiness was of an infinite length. But based upon the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ, it's gone. It's gone. God looks on me just as if I had never sinned because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So there is this desperate need for redemption, a redemption that the Lord provided through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and through His redemption. And so, yes, we do acknowledge that Israel had to go off into exile, but there the Lord would redeem the people of God. And so, in conclusion tonight, uh, we need to soberly acknowledge the need that we have of redemption, but then also know that there is redemption, there is forgiveness with the Lord that He may be feared. And as these words come forth, it is with this exhortation, look unto the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, all you ends of the earth.